Good morning. We are continuing today in our Advent series on the fourfold revelation of Christ. Last week, for those of you who are here, you know that we stopped the clock, so to speak. Uh, I didn't. I threatened taking it off the wall, but I didn't actually do it. I wasn't sure what sort of a response I would have, but we we stopped the clock. We went back to way before the beginning of time, before the creation of the world, and there we discovered that Jesus being sent to earth as a baby was not God's plan B, it was not his plan C or D, it was always his plan A, right from the very beginning. Before he started creation, this was his plan. And so today, we are going to start the clock on creation, and we are going to take a closer look at the very first glimpse of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And it might surprise you to find that very first glimpse all the way back in the Garden of Eden. So we're going to go there in God's Word this morning. Before we do that, would you bow with me? Father God, we thank you that your plan, which you ordained, which you determined from the beginning, before the beginning of time, that nothing and no one is going to stop it. That nothing and no power in this world will be able to stop, to thwart, or even delay your perfect will and your perfect plan for your creation. And so we thank you, God, that you are sovereign, you are in control, and that we can be at perfect rest and peace in the knowledge that you are not only in control of this world, but you are in control of each one of our lives. And so we thank you, Lord, that today we come to you with that confidence. And so now, Lord Jesus, as we once again look at you and see how you have been revealed to us, to your creation, you didn't just do that in a manger in Bethlehem, though that was the ultimate revelation. You began to reveal yourself even at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden. And so, Father, as we once again look back at your wonderful, amazing plan, would you fill our hearts again with a sense of awe and wonder at what you have done for us, the provision you have made for us, that our sins can be forgiven, that though great mistakes have been made, that through you and what you have done, there is forgiveness, there is redemption, there is salvation. And so I pray that you would again speak to us through your word by your Holy Spirit, Be with me, Lord. Give me boldness. Give me clarity to speak your word the way you want me to. Give each one here today ears to hear. Open their spirits and minds to understand. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever come up with a plan before? Anyone? Have you ever come up with a plan? Have you ever said, I have a plan? You ever done that? We've all done it, right? We've all said, I have a plan. Or someone's got a problem and you say, I have an idea. Now, have you ever had one of those plans, one of those ideas, where you said, I've got a plan, and it just seemed like the best idea ever? It was just like, nothing is wrong with this plan. It is perfect. But then, you start going through with that plan, and about halfway through, somewhere right in the middle of committing to this plan of action, you have this moment of clarity (laughs) where you say these dreaded words, this was a bad idea. (laughs) Now, I'm going to share with you 
the one time in my life that that happened to me. Just once. Okay, maybe there's been a couple more, but this one stood out in my mind as I was thinking about this this past week. On this particular occasion, the thought, this is a bad idea, didn't cross my mind until, unfortunately, I was already approximately 15 feet in the air, suspended by nothing other than gravity, which we all know what gravity likes to do. So you'll have to try to picture this with me. There's unfortunately not a video of this event, but I'll try my best to describe it for you. So follow along with me, if you will. I'm approximately 15 feet in the air, and if we were to hit the pause button on that moment, my degree of attitude towards the earth is not upright or in a vertical position. It's much more in a horizontal position. So it's something like like this, and uh, um, my feet are actually higher up than my head is, so my head's closer to the ground than my feet, and my feet are attached to a snowboard, and in case you hadn't figured it out yet, the snowboard is what I'm hoping to land on, (laughs) okay? So we all know what gravity does, right? Most of you have probably experimented with defeating gravity once or twice. I've done it many times, and Gravity wins, okay? So in this particular instance, I'm I'm about like this. I'm about 15 feet off the ground. Oh, and did I forget to mention that I wasn't going over a nice fluffy snowbank. You know, there wasn't this cushion that was going to catch me. No, I was going over frozen ice, a bare patch of dirt. Oh, and for good measure, there were some rocks sprinkled in. And uh, did I also fail to mention this is my third time ever snowboarding? So... Everything has come together to this moment of suspension above the ground. And I remember thinking very clearly in that moment of panic and terror, this was a really bad idea. Now, if you've still got me paused in that moment there for a moment, um, if someone had been, you know, an outside spectator of that moment, they would have probably thought to themselves, this kid's in over his head. And if you get that, your name's Barry Reimer. (laughs) Now, this kid's in over his head. And if they had thought that, if Barry had been there, he would have thought that. Eric probably would have as well. But technically, I didn't land on my head. I actually landed on my face, which is minor details, of course. But the thought that this was a really bad idea was verified when... You hit the play button, gravity does what gravity does, and the trip to the emergency room with two fractured bones and multiple bone chips my left wrist confirmed the thought. Yes, it had indeed been a very bad idea. And the two lessons that I learned that day, well, there was a few more lessons, but the two main lessons I learned that day is the first, that just because your big brother and his friends double dog dare you to do something, doesn't mean you have to. So that was lesson number one. And the second lesson is, once you're in the air, once you're committed to your course of action, there comes a point of no return. Once you've gone through with your plan or your idea, there is no going back. There is no rewind button. So for good or bad, you have to deal with the outcome of your actions. 
Moving into our text for this morning from Genesis chapter 3. You can turn there with me. We're going to spend a bit of time there in Genesis chapter 3. The creation narrative, which is directly followed by the account of the fall in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. I don't have to familiarize any of you, I don't believe, too much with the story. I think everyone knows the main details. God has created a perfect world. Everything is going so well until along comes the serpent. And so we look at the story, we we look at the setting, everything's perfect, but somewhere into these course of actions, I wonder if Adam and Eve had one of those moments where you hit the pause button and they look in the mirror and they say to themselves, this was a really bad idea. Let's look at the story. Verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. Now, God said what? You can eat of any tree in the garden. It's all yours, but this one tree, this special tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this one, leave it alone. It's going to be there. It's it's going to, you know, just stand there in the middle. But don't touch it. Don't don't eat from it. Just leave this one alone. Just trust me. Don't eat from this tree. But of course, along comes the serpent. Everything changes. Now, of course, we always think of the fruit in the garden as an apple. But I'm pretty sure it wasn't an apple. Because, well, is an apple really all that tempting? Now, I like an an apple as much as the next person, I suppose, but I'm pretty sure that whatever that fruit was, it wasn't an apple. It was something far more appealing, far more appetizing. And so, here, Eve is looking at this fruit. We'll use this for illustration this morning. God says not to, but first, what does the verse say? She sees that the fruit was good for food. It's appealing. It catches her eye. It looks good. So therefore, it must taste delicious. Thirdly, she realizes that as the serpent said, this is going to make me smart. Eating this isn't just going to taste good, it's going to make me smarter. I'm going to be like God. And on top of this all, the serpents just essentially double-dog dared her to do it, right? Come on, do it. It'll make you smart. It's good for you. God's holding out on you. And so she looks at it, she sizes it up, She obviously takes it in her hand at some point. And at some point, she turns the corner from wrestling with this temptation. God told me not to. But at some point, she makes up her mind and says, I am going through with this course of action. It's pretty good, actually. She takes a bite. And as she stands there and she chews on it, I'm sure the sensation, the tastes hit her taste buds. It tastes good. Maybe even better than she'd anticipated. And then she's looking around. Has anything changed? Has anything happened? And initially, nothing has changed. And it seems as though nothing has happened. Adam's standing there. He's looking at her. She's taking a bite. She hands it to him. He takes it. He takes a bite. And for a brief moment, they look at each other, and they got away with it. Nothing changed. Nothing happened. They didn't die on the spot. Everything was okay. 
But as Adam and Eve looked at one another, suddenly something did change. Suddenly they noticed something that they had never before noticed or had even crossed their minds. They realized that they were naked. And suddenly, filled with shame, they cover themselves. They cover themselves. For the first time, they cover themselves. Why? They felt shame. And they, they look at the trees around them. There's a fig tree, and they say, let's, let's make something to cover ourselves up. I don't like this feeling. I don't like this embarrassment. And so they cover themselves. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And I wonder, I wonder if while they were hastily covering themselves with those leaves, I wonder if one of them uttered the words, whose idea was this anyways? I kind of get the feeling they did. A little bit later on, who does Adam blame? The woman, the one you gave to me. It was her idea. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. Whose idea was this anyways? And whether they said it aloud or not, we know what they were thinking. Instantly, they were filled with shame. They realized they were naked. And oh, how they must have wished they could just hit the rewind button. Go back and tell that old serpent to eat dirt and get lost. But there was no going back. There was no rewind button. No undoing the course of action they had chosen. They were in the air, so to speak. And there was only one way forward, and that was down. The only question was, how hard would they hit? And so with their hearts filled with fear, they did what all disobedient children have done ever since. What do your kids do when they've done something wrong? They hide. Well, at least ours do. They hide. They try to, they try to cover it up. They try to get away with it. They run away and hide. Why? Because they know what's coming. Dad's coming. Mom's coming. And punishment's coming. And they don't want that. They run and they hide. Verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This pattern set for us by our first parents has been one that all of their descendants have followed ever since. God tells us, trust me, obey me, and you will live. I made you. I know how life works best. Follow my ways and you will live. But we too look at the forbidden fruit. We look at it in whatever shape or form we are tempted by it. And first, it looks so good. Second, if it looks that good, experiencing it must be even better. Three, If my life will be better and richer if I do it, why shouldn't I do it? And so fourthly, we too take that fruit and we take a bite. And at first it may seem like we get away with it. But then shame sets in. We try to cover it up and finally we too hear God coming and we hide. We hide away and as a result we sever the relationship with the only one who can actually help us with our problem. Now, as a child, I always heard the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And I always just thought of it as almost trivial. 
Like, what was the big deal about eating a piece of fruit anyways? It's just fruit, you know, like, yeah, they disobeyed, but how many times hadn't I disobeyed with something far worse with my own parents? Like, why would this derail the course of human history? It seems so small. What's the big deal? But I've come to understand that regardless of the magnitude of the outward action, it is the inward spirit of rebellion and disobedience towards God. That's the real problem. That's where sin lies. You, you could be a serial killer. Something that, you know, the worst possible sin that we could think of. You could be a serial killer. Or you could be a serial gossip. The root problem is the same. It is disobedience and it is rebellion. You could be an adulterer. You could be a serial adulterer. Or you could simply look at someone with lust in your heart. And the consequences in regards to your relationship with God is the same. Sin, rebellion, disobedience. Yes, the outward actions is what we can see, but it begins in the heart. And so, even though eating a piece of fruit didn't seem like a big deal, it began that process of the inner rebellion and sin being birthed in the hearts of Adam and Eve and therefore in all of their children to follow them. In a book called The All Thumbs Guide to VCRs, does anyone remember what those are? Does anyone remember? Does anyone still have a VCR? Okay, be honest. I have one. It's away in a box somewhere. It's not hooked up. Who still has a VCR hooked up? I, oh, wow, there's more than I thought. Okay, so you know what we're talking about here. Now, I found this, this illustration, and I thought I'd share it with you. You can, you can substitute D, DVD player if you like. I'm sure the application is the same. In a book called All Thumbs Guide to VCRs, it's a, a do-it-yourself repair guide for beginners. The author of this book, Gene Williams, begins the book with this warning. This is what he writes. Getting a jolt from an incoming 120 volts AC is more than just unpleasant. It can be fatal. Studies have shown that it takes very little current to kill. Even a small amount of current can paralyze your muscles, and you won't be able to let go. Just a fraction more, and your heart muscle can become paralyzed. You see, Williams knew that a naive repairman doesn't have enough respect for the lethal power of electricity. And so if you have a live wire at even 120 volts, and you hold on to that live wire, 120 volts by itself, yeah, if you, if you just touch it, oh, wow, you know, your hair might stand up and your arm tingle a little bit, but that's about it. But if you're holding on to that wire, you might not be able to let go. Even at the smallest level, electricity can still be fatal. The shock hurts, but if you cannot let go of the wire, it can be fatal. And so it is with sin. People dabble with sin because they don't fear its power to paralyze. We start with something small thinking, I can let go whenever I want. But even the smallest amount, once we grab onto it, it can get a hold of us. It begins to paralyze us from within. It paralyzes our hearts. It paralyzes our minds. It paralyzes our souls. And we can't help but continue. Not only can we not let go, it begins 
to take a hold on us. Even at the smallest, most trivial level, sin is never safe. In short, sin kills. Its wages are death, both physically and spiritually. And so Adam and Eve have sinned. There's no going back. There's no rewind button. So what does God do? Let's look at his response. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? How many times haven't we heard that from our own parents? Where are you? If you're a parent, how many times haven't you called that to your own child? Where are you? Where are you? God calls to his children. Where are you? You see, what does God do with his children when they've disobeyed and rebelled? Does he just leave them there? Does he just say they've made their bed, now let them lie in it? No. He goes looking for them. Where are you? Right from the very beginning, we see that God is a seeking father. He's a seeking father. He searches for us. He looks for Adam and Eve. He calls them by name. And so let me just ask you, is sin in your life causing you to hide away from your father? Is sin in your life keeping you hidden away in the trees like Adam and Eve? If so, listen up. Because God is calling your name. He doesn't just leave you out there. He is looking for you. He is calling for you. He wants you to step out into the light. And he calls out, Adam, where are you? And sheepishly, Adam and Eve step out from the trees and into the light of God's presence. Did it hurt? (laughs) You better believe it. Were there consequences? Absolutely. The perfect creation became unraveled. The curse was implemented. We sang about that in Joy to the World. Far as the curse is found, the curse was implemented at this very moment. Creation unraveled. Labor pain. Strained marital relations. Toil. Thistles. Sweat. And finally death. We're now going to be the norm for all of Adam and Eve's descendants. But right In the middle of this, in verse 15, smack in the middle of pronouncing the curse on the serpent, God also reveals for the very first time his plan for mankind's forgiveness and redemption. The serpent had his moment, but God would reply with the seed. The serpent versus the seed. Let's look at those verses more closely. Verse 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. You will strike his heel and he will crush your head. Now you might not see it at first glance, But this is the first revelation of Jesus in Scripture. Now where is he, you might ask? Well, let's take a closer look. Theologians call this declaration of God the proto-evangelium. Proto being like prototype, the first. The proto-evangelium. It means the first gospel. These words spoken by God contain the earliest promise of redemption in the Bible. Everything else in Scripture flows out of this one verse. 
As the acorn contains the mighty oak, so these words contain the entire plan of salvation. The great English preacher Charles Simeon called this verse the sum and summary of the whole Bible. Now, the English word offspring in the Hebrew is directly translated as seed. In this apple, there are seeds. In the right conditions, we take one of these seeds out, we plant it in the ground, and over many years, with the proper care and nurturing, that seed could become a tree which could again produce apples. And so it is with this word of God. It is the seed, the first. Now, this word offspring, meaning seed, refers to the spiritual line of men and women of faith in every generation who have believed in God and put their trust in Him. This is the godly line that leads to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Ruth, David, Esther, so on, so forth, all of the prophets. And eventually, this seed, this line of descendants, culminates in a Jewish girl from the village of Nazareth. We know her name. We saw the video. Her name's Mary. Now that God said her seed in the verse is very important, I want you to look again at the verse. Notice what it says. It doesn't say his seed. It says her seed or her descendants. This is important. Because in Hebrew, the male is exclusively considered the one who has the seed. It's a patriarchal society. Women are second-class citizens. They are not factored into the equation of descendants. It is always about the man. The male line of ancestry is what is always recorded. So the fact that it says her seed just jumps out at you. It jumps out. Because children are always referred to as being the heirs of their father, never their mother. So why does God leave Adam entirely out of the equation? Why does he remove him altogether and specifically says her seed? It's because he is revealing a key component of his master plan. He's giving them a clue as to who Satan's defeat and mankind's redemption would ultimately come through. He would be born a child, not of Adam's seed, but of Eve's, which begs the question, How can this be possible? Thousands of years later, someone else asked the same question. How can this be? How is this possible? Another clue was given through the prophet Isaiah before that event. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Fast forward another 700 years to Luke chapter 1 and verse 31 into the setting of a tiny stone house carved into a mountainside in the town of Nazareth. I had the great opportunity to see that place. It really opens your eyes to think of how the people of that day lived. And Mary there in this little stone house carved into a mountainside suddenly has this angel appear. She's just most likely in her late teen years, going about her usual household chores for the day when the angel appears and declares, you will be with child and give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. 
He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And verse 34, Mary asks, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Adam, in his sin, is removed from the equation. It is her seed, her line. And when we put all of these pieces together, we can clearly see that Jesus' virgin birth as the seed of the woman, with God as his only father, was declared from the very first moment that God's master plan was revealed all the way back in the garden. How neat is that? That from the very beginning, God's plan was set, and he gives clues as to how it is going to unfold. And now we have the tremendous privilege of being at this point in history where we can look back over the whole plan and how it was revealed from the beginning, and we can see how all of the pieces fit together in this marvelous plan of salvation. How amazing is that? No man, no earthly being could think up an idea like that. Only God could think of that, let alone achieve such a plan. But the plan doesn't end there. Because through the seed of Jesus' life, planted in the ground by death, he germinated, as it were, and sprang forth, giving new life to many. And so now, through faith in him, we can be saved from the sin of Adam's line, which is where sin comes from, that leads us to certain death. And we can be born again into the imperishable seed of Christ as his descendants. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, Peter draws on this metaphor. This is what he says. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. This is what Peter says. This is how we are born again. You see, the serpent took his best shot but the seed of the woman would prevail. However, in our lives and in the course of history, it doesn't always look that way, does it? When we go back to Genesis 3.15, the next thing I want you to take note of is this. Sometimes it will look like Satan is winning. Sometimes it will look that way. God says to the serpent, you will strike his heel. Have you ever had a heel spur or a, a bone bruise on your heel? Have you ever strained your Achilles tendon? I've done that before. If you've had any of those injuries, you know how painful that can be. And we normally don't think about heels until we start having problems. But what happens if you have a heel injury? You end up in crutches or in a walking boot or other such fun items. And heels take a long time to heal. If you can follow along, gotta love English. Heels take a long time to heal. Why? Because you've got to put them up and we want to use them to get around. It always slows us down. But the thing is with a heel injury is it won't kill you. It's really painful, it's really annoying, but it won't kill you. You can live with heel problems. When our text says you will strike his heel, it has a twofold reference. First, it refers to the fact that in this life, Satan will sometimes win a battle or two or at least appear that way. 
He has many tools in his arsenal, and he shoots them at the people of God 24 hours a day. The Bible gives us many descriptions of him. He is a deceiver, telling us that life is more fun his way. He is a roaring lion, looking to intimidate and devour us. He is an assassin, lurking in the shadows, looking for an opportunity to shoot his fiery darts into our souls. He is a destroyer, using small yet repetitive blows to break us down, discourage us until we just want to quit. Interestingly, it's reported that the most frequent causes of heel pain does not result from a single injury, but by repetitive or excessive heel pounding. You see, sometimes we are wounded not by big incidents, but by the little things that take their toll over time. When I worked in a hog barn, we had to walk around all day for a long time in just a plain old pair of rubber boots. And you're walking on concrete for sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. My brothers know what I'm talking about. It takes its toll on your feet. And after a while, your heels can get pounded, just bruised from too much excessive use. And so it is with the attacks on us. Sometimes it's not a big thing. It's the little things that add up over time. And we get discouraged. Often this begins with that lingering sense of discouragement, which can be easily fueled by criticism or gossip. Sometimes it can be because a cherished plan has failed or a dream we had is not coming true. At moments like that, it seems like the enemy is winning. In moments like that, it's incredibly easy to lose heart, to give up, and to just go numb to life, to family, and to God. And if that describes you in any way this morning, you need to hear the rest of this story. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, it sure looked like Satan was winning, didn't it? The disciples thought so. They thought it was game over. They thought it was checkmate. It was over. Their visions, their dreams, their aspirations were all going down the tubes. Jesus was dying before their very eyes. It sure looked like Satan was winning. It looked like it was game over. But what had God said to Satan all the way back in the garden? He said, you will strike his heel. So follow along with me. Where on Jesus' body were the nails pounded in? In his hands and in his feet. But where into his feet exactly? This is something I just read very recently, which is fascinating to me. According to the Times of Israel, an archaeological discovery has shed some new light onto the Roman practice of crucifixion. The remains were found of a man who had been executed by crucifixion. The unusual part was that the iron spike that had held his feet to the cross was still in his foot. But rather than being driven through the top of the foot, as it is typically depicted in pictures... The spike was driven in from the side directly through his heel. And so we, we have this picture in our mind, I'm sure you can envision it, of, of the typical portrayals of Jesus on the cross. His feet are overlapped like this with a little wood block underneath and the nails put down like this. But this shows that at least in some instances, the prisoners were crucified to the cross with their feet on either side of the beam with a a nail or an iron spike driven through the heel into the side of the beam. You will strike his 
heal. Jesus' heal was not just struck metaphorically, but physically. And in that moment, it appeared that Satan had won the battle. But is that how the story ended? No, it's not. You will strike his heel, and he will crush your head. Satan delivered a terrible blow to Jesus on Good Friday. No doubt he thought he had thrown a knockout punch, but he was wrong. All he did was strike Jesus on the heel. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he delivered the knockout blow to Satan. It was a total mismatch. Heel wounds are painful, but not fatal. No one, however, survives a crushed head. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it was God's death blow against Satan, sin, and death in one foul swoop. Romans chapter 6, verses 10 to 11 tells us, The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus' perfect life, his death and his resurrection, was and is God's only plan A. For the redemption of man. Ever since the creation of time to the fall in the garden, right through to this very day, this is God's plan. And it's his plan for you. That through faith, through faith in his death, in his life, in his resurrection, that his life becomes our life. Just as his death was our death, his victory is now our victory. And his life is our life. Now, I don't know what you're dealing with today. I know that some of you are dealing with some really difficult circumstances in your lives. I know that many of you are dealing with difficult circumstances in your families. But I don't know all the particulars. And one thing I do know is that all of us, regardless of if people on the outside know what we're dealing with, every last one of us here today, every last one of you is dealing with something on the inside. Because we all have struggles. We all have temptations we're dealing with. We all have our own inner discouragements that we have to counteract. And I don't know what you're all dealing with today. What battles you are fighting, perhaps with discouragement. Perhaps with weariness. Perhaps with disillusionment. And maybe in your life, you're hanging in the air right about now. And you're thinking to yourself, what I just did, that was a really bad idea. And right now, you're just wondering, how hard is the ground going to hit? But while I don't know your personal struggles, what I can tell you today with absolute certainty is this. Wherever in your life it looks as though the enemy is winning, that is not the end of the story. Satan does not get the final say. God does. If you feel like you're fighting a losing battle, hold on to Jesus. For in Him, you are more than a conqueror. You are a child of the King of kings, of the Lord of lords. And so today, don't shrink back from the battle. 
Don't run. Don't hide. And whatever you do, don't quit. Look to Jesus. As the author of the book of Hebrews said, consider Him who endured such opposition from sinners. Consider Him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Maybe today you're weary and you're losing heart. Consider Him. Consider Him whose heel was struck, who endured the cross and the scorn and the shame, and He overcame it all. He is today glorified, sitting at the right hand of the Father. What are you dealing with today? What's got you down? What sin is crippling you? Consider Him, the seed of the woman. He is your salvation. He is the only one who can help you. Look to Him today. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Consider Him. And when we do, allow that to fuel your courage. Fuel your heart, your, your, your hands, your feet into action and join in the battle. Join in with the conqueror. Jesus entered the field of battle and he invites us, he welcomes us to join him in it. He, enjoy, he, he, he welcomes us as a fellow soldier to say, come with me, join in the battle. Even if it looks bleak right now, the victory is assured. Join in. And as we do, remember, our victories will not come without wounds along the way. If Jesus suffered in doing the will of God, we will too. He said as much. At the cross, Satan struck a blow and wounded Christ on his heel. And even after his resurrection, his body bore the marks of his suffering. In eternity, he will have the scars to show us what he's done for us, to remind us. And as we go through this life, we will bear scars as well. Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 8, we read, Join with me in suffering for the gospel. And maybe you've had just one too many bail and flails in your life, so to speak. You crashed, you hit hard, and you're in that ER room and you're saying, I could never do that again. I could never get back up. I'm never strapping that snowboard back on ever again. That thought never crossed my mind. (laughs) Maybe it's only because I was 15, but that thought never crossed my mind. It took me a long time. It took me three months, three months later, going back to Botno Winter Park, I looked at that same jump, and with a little bit more skill and practice under my belt, I hit that same jump again. And this time, I did not bail and flail. I made it. I landed on the snowboard as I had planned, and I carried on. That's what God wants for us. Yes, there are times where we're going to bail and flail, but get back up. Get back on that board. Keep going. Join the battle. And he will help us. He will. That is his promise. Would you bow with me? And let's pray together this morning. Father God, you know each heart and each mind of each person who's here today. And Holy Spirit, I just pray that wherever wherever we are at today, would you speak right now? Lord, where there is discouragement, where there is pain, where there is heartache, where there is unbelief, where there is sin, oh Lord, speak your words of life. May each one hear your voice saying, where are you? Come to me. I can help you. I can forgive you. 
I can restore you. I can give you new life. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would just speak to each one of us. Encourage us through your word and by your spirit. That wherever we're at, would you give hope? Would you give life? Would you give courage to join you in the battle? Knowing that we are more than conquerors through you who loved us. We give you all glory and praise for what you are doing in this church and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.